0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The Planned Parenthood Clinic in Colorado Springs came under attack four years ago this month. Just days before the deadly hours-long siege, a doctor who worked at the clinic emailed leadership expressing concerns about security.
1: We had never done a drill for the entire four years that I was working for Planned Parenthood.
0: When a drill did take place about a month after the attack, one employee says it was sprung on the staff when they were still raw.
2: We were told that the person conducting the drill would go around saying, shooter, shooter, but they actually went around hitting a notebook. (laughs) You know, in that drill setting, that sounds like gunfire. That's what they intended it to be.
0: Plus, Planned Parenthood responds. Then, Thanksgiving's almost here. A chef specializing in southwestern cuisine has a surprise ingredient for Turkey Day. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Four years ago this month, a shooter walked into a health care clinic in Colorado Springs. A deadly, hours-long standoff began inside Planned Parenthood, the only abortion provider in the city suspect is supposed to be. Uh,
1: I've been advised that there's two people in that last room Uh, in order to get to them through the door. We have to enter that hallway where
0: he's at. Police scanner traffic from that day. The shooter killed two patients and an officer who'd responded. Nine other people were injured. Well, today, two former employees of the clinic say Planned Parenthood didn't do enough to prepare for the attack and didn't provide enough support afterwards. I asked why they're speaking out now.
2: I would say that this can happen to any organization, any business. And what are the plans so that victims after shootings get the proper care that they need and it's not just swept under the rug and pushed aside?
1: For me, it's also really important to make sure that for people that are providing abortion care, that they're supported because undoubtedly we're going to be having these events happen in the future. And we need to make sure that those folks are supported going forward. Knowing how poorly they treated us, I doubt they have the pieces in place to support people that may go through this in the future.
0: The voices of our guests today, Dr. James Boyd and former medical assistant Lindsey Raymond, who were both on duty November 27, 2015. Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains declined an interview but provided a written response to some of the claims you'll hear. And we'll share that along the way. Dr. Boyd. Five days before the attack, you wrote an email to officials at Planned Parenthood. It's titled, Security Follow-Up, and in it you express concern about resources for the providers and staff regarding overall security, at work, at home, other locations. What moved you to send that email?
1: Well, I had worked for Planned Parenthood at that time for nearly four years, and, and from when I first started until even that month i had watched a pattern of inaction as an example you know they had a, a us marshal do a security audit in 2012 and that us marshal went to all the locations that our medical director would attend, but not some of the other locations, such as Fort Collins or Colorado Springs, which are two of the busiest clinics.
0: So the medical director works out of another office, and there was a security analysis of some of the
1: field offices that she went to. And I remember getting interviewed by the security expert, I took my own time to meet in the Denver office with this person. So that's in 2012, three years prior to the shooting. Three years prior to the shooting. And to my knowledge, none of the recommendations that were part of that report were ever implemented. So, for example, one of the recommendations, and I don't want to go into the de- too many of the details, but this is a pretty standard recommendation, is that if you're going to have a policy on active shooters, uh, you should actually implement practices, uh, training protocols. Drills. uh, Drills. And we had never done a drill for the entire four years that I was working for Planned Parenthood.
0: You had never done a drill at a Planned Parenthood clinic about what happens if someone who wanted to do the clinic and its staff harm or its patient's
1: harm walked in? Correct. Not a single time. Did that surprise you? Yes. And that was, again, part of why I sent that email. Um, you know, to take you back a little bit to that, uh, those few months before, you know, there was a series of false videos that were out that really ratcheted up the rhetoric at the time. Uh, there was a dramatic increase in the threats that we were receiving to the point where our medical director had to move out of her house and at the time had 24-hour security protection. Again, this now former medical director did not work out of the Colorado Springs office. She would intermittently, but not on a regular basis. But she had temporarily actually stopped coming to the clinics because of the threats that were directed to her.
0: Was the clinic, in your mind, secure enough? The, The doors, the windows, the procedures just around letting people in?
1: Overall, that clinic was probably one of the better clinics, but yet it had some fundamental flaws that none of the security personnel had identified prior to this event. Even just one of the simple things that we had talked about was, you know, what could we do in these situations? Because many of the rooms that we were in are not lockable. And having a conversation about just even making sure the staff is trained And door stops are available so that you could have something to block a door so it couldn't easily be opened. And this is not a high-cost intervention. And, again, at that time, from those conversations, three years went by, and that was never implemented. You know, the policies were in place, but we never would actually practice them in the time that I was there. And I also know from talking with many of the other staff members that they had not participated in, in those trainings either. What do you mean the policies were there? So they certainly had an active shooter policy. It was a written policy. But if you don't practice them, you just generally don't do them well. This email to read it now is, well, it's
0: prescient and it's, it's haunting
3: mm-hmm.
0: because it's just days before the attack.
1: Yeah. I mean, I wish the events had not happened, but this is something that we face at every clinic uh, when we do this work. And I think one of the other really important pieces is we can't prevent every one of these attacks, um, and in all likelihood, they will happen again. But what we can do is prepare as best we can and have honest conversations with the staff about what is being done. But just a few days after the shooting, I remember getting a, an email from somebody in the central staff noting that security was verifiably solid. And this was sent to all the survivors, some of us surviving over five hours of gunfire.
0: I want to talk about how you think Plan Parenthood had handled this in the aftermath, because I know that, Lindsay, for you, that's of particular concern. Are anniversaries like this... Uh, very difficult, or do you carry this with you every day?
2: Oh, I carry it with me every day, um, and the anniversary is just an added, an added weight. Um,
0: what do you carry with you?
2: Um, I carry PTSD of gunfire, loud noises. I carry the idea of not being heard. I mean, I I have nightmares every night. Doesn't matter. What medication I've been given? I literally toss and turn every night. Um, an ability, inability to have control over a situation that I'm put in, and how to deal with that on a normal scale versus thinking that I'm my life's in danger if I don't have control over the situation. Mm. So that's what I carry with me every day.
1: What about you, doctor? Everybody's path on PTSD is different. So I've not had the anxiety. I don't have the nightmares. If anything, um, my trigger is worrying about the staff. The staff that remains. Well, the staff that remains and the staff that was there that day. um, I think about them often.
0: Uh, Will you each describe where you were, what you were doing when the attack began? And, And it was prolonged. This was a many hours affair.
2: I was towards the front of the building with a patient in a room with no windows of any sort. So the first sounds of gunfire to me sounded like maybe a cabinet fell over or something, just some loud bang. At that time, my brain didn't register gunfire the same way it does now. And I was in there for the duration of the entire shooting.
0: At what point did it become clear that it wasn't, uh, you know, a
2: backfire or a file cabinet falling? Uh, Within the second or third shot. It was very quick for sure. How long were you in that room then? Over five hours. Over
0: five hours. With a patient?
2: With a patient. And neither of us had our cell phones with us.
1: So there was no connection to the outside? Correct. And Dr. Boyd? Uh, in the beginning part, I was in the, the back of the building actually getting prepared for some patient care. And the initial stages, uh, I was actually moving around because several of us were checking on others and then ultimately returned to what we call the doctor's office, uh, where... Just after some of the staff got patients out of the front lobby and into a back room, we locked some doors and then put ourselves in that uh, office. And I was in there with four other staff members. And then periodically trying to communicate with a nurse who was with two patients that was in a room adjacent to us that we had a pass through window um, until we felt it wasn't safe for them to be out in the open in that room. And, and then they went into a, a bathroom where they could lock the door. You're listening
0: to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. Four years after a deadly attack on Planned Parenthood in Colorado Springs, we're hearing from two former employees who are concerned that more could have been done to prepare and that staff didn't get the support they needed afterwards. We asked Planned Parenthood for an interview, which they declined, but here's some of their written response. Quote, Our ability to respond in any meaningful way is limited by court orders. Our organization is and always has been committed to assuring the safety and security of all those who visit and work in our health centers. The violence unleashed by the gunman that November day was beyond anything we could have prepared for or stopped. Dr. Boyd's statements to the contrary are both inaccurate and hurtful. End quote. Now we put the claims of inaction after that security audit Dr. Boyd mentioned and the lack of an active shooter drill to Planned Parenthood. Without providing any specifics, they say his claims are false. Let's rejoin my conversation with Dr. James Boyd and former medical assistant Lindsay Raymond. Dr. Boyd was fired. Raymond quit. Lindsay, you left Planned Parenthood shortly after the shooting. Why did you leave?
2: So, I actually went back to work for Planned Parenthood. I was in limbo for some time. They were still paying us full-time, full time, w- full wages, however.
0: Because the clinic was closed for a time. The clinic after was the show. closed.
2: Um, we were told then in two weeks you will have to come back to work part time and do dusting, organize some stuff while there was construction still going on in the building to put it back.
0: So at this point, it had been a crime scene, obviously. There was, what, repair work to do, a kind of
2: renovation after something like that? Correct. I mean, they, they rammed a vehicle into the side of the building, the SWAT team did. So we went back to work part-time, and that was for probably about a month, maybe a month and a half, until the clinic was opened partially, meaning... The back half of the building that had less damage done to it was going to be open to see patients. And it was in this time, right before we reopened the clinic, that we were told we were going to be doing an active shooter training. And we had discussed it as a team if we wanted to do a video or if we wanted to do a drill. Administration had thought that we were the best ones to kind of give our input. And we kind of decided we wanted to do a video And that was kind of the last talk of it and walked in one day and there was a projector set up. All of the admin staff was there and we were told we were doing active shooter training that day when we showed up to the clinic. We watched a video from the FBI that had someone being gunned down within five to 10 seconds of the video. And we all kind of got heated afterwards, ended up taking a break And it was told after the break, if you want to participate in the drill, you can. So we're all talking during the break, and we're like, I don't want to do this. I kind of didn't think anything of it, but everybody else was saying, I don't want to do this. And when we walked back to the meeting, it was told that it was mandatory to participate. And that's kind of when I was just felt like I wanted to advocate for my peers and say, like, we don't want to do this.
0: Why? Just because it was... Re-traumatizing the sounds, the
2: experience. Yes, exactly. We had already been through it. It felt mute. What's the point in doing this?
0: Well, it seems like training is still an important thing, even if you've been through something like that. So,
1: uh, And this is one of the points that I think is so important. There were so many layers of leadership that were present and thought that this was a good idea to put the staff that had been through the shooting weeks before that lasted for hours through a mock shooting training um, without
2: any heads up, Mm -hmm. they never said, hey, tomorrow when you come in, we're doing this training.
1: Generally speaking, and especially in reproductive health, we talk of trauma-informed care. So for survivors of sexual assault, we would never do this to a patient in that setting. And I, I find it just appalling that the leadership thought that this was appropriate. And it highlights how worried I am about them not having the guidance and leadership that they need, where this was okay to do to the staff that day.
0: So were you forced to participate that day?
2: I personally did not participate because I was expressing my feelings of how upset I was that they did not give us any prior warning and that they mandated we do it We were also told that the person conducting the drill would go around saying, shooter, shooter, but they actually went around hitting a notebook. So it was like a, you know, in that drill setting, that sounds like gunfire. That's what they intended it to be, was the sound of gunfire.
0: So you were there.
2: I was there. I was pulled aside and was talking to the regional manager. I could hear all of this going on while I was expressing my upsetness over it all. And she had the audacity to tell me that she doesn't sleep very well either. And I basically then was like, well, you weren't there that day. Don't tell me how this has affected you. They were so interested in opening the clinic that they weren't thinking about things. I mean, I found charts with bullet holes in them.
0: And so you open a file sometime yeah. after the shooting and you see bullet holes in it.
2: Correct. And so it just felt like misguided guided <laughs> leadership again of like, this is something you should have gone through and make sure wasn't in the building.
0: So you think that Planned Parenthood was in a rush to reopen the clinic, which put differently could be they were in a rush to make sure that they could continue to serve the population. Yeah, that's another way to look at it. But you you think that that was hasty. Correct. And you also think that the timing of the drill was inappropriate.
2: Correct. And we were told after When we reopened the clinic, that we would have staff that could come and take over. If, you know, you had a a patient ask a hard question of like, were you there that day? Something, we were told that we would be okay. But we never had that staff present, so we felt like we couldn't just leave if we wanted to leave. That's a big thing. I asked for what Planned Parenthood wanted us to say to patients. Um, if they do ask, were you there that day? If they do ask, am I safe today? If they do ask all these questions, how do we respond to them to give them good care um, without belittling their experience? I mean, it affected the whole community.
0: And did you not get that information?
2: It took a very long time. And um, How long is a very long time? <laughs> two Over two weeks after the clinic opened and me pressuring at least... Every other day, where are these answers?
1: This goes back to how dedicated the staff is. Many of the survivors are still working at that at that clinic, uh, despite how they've been treated. And in general, uh, the staff was incredibly brave that day. And there's this dichotomy of the people that are actually providing the care and the dedication they have versus how the leadership is performing. So, Dr. Boyd, you were terminated by Planned
0: Parenthood, and you provided a copy of a letter from their attorneys. To your counsel, it reads, in part, it is clear that Dr. Boyd is substantially dissatisfied with and lacks trust in both the organization's management and its operational policies and procedures. They did go on to say that your service was greatly appreciated and that Planned Parenthood wished you nothing but the best going forward. Is it possible, though, that speaking
1: out is sour grapes on your part Because of losing your job. Uh, No, I, you know, the um, I got into providing abortion care out of the importance of doing this work and we don't have enough providers and it's incredibly fulfilling work. The reason that, that I'm speaking up is to try and make sure that we have the resources in place. So should this happen again, people can be protected and supported regardless of what clinic it is, and make sure that we can do this better in the future. A
0: strategist who works with Planned Parenthood in Colorado sent us an email saying, I would caution you about his credibility.
1: I would find that hard to believe. Pretty much everything that I have done, I have done out of an interest for the staff and for the mission. Uh, The most simple thing would have been for me to just keep my mouth shut and not get involved.
0: Neither of you is taking legal action. Is that correct? That is correct. There are people who still work at Planned Parenthood in Colorado Springs today who were there the day of the attack. They've stayed. Is that in spite of Planned Parenthood or could it be because of Planned Parenthood? In other words, it seems that there are some employees who might have had a different experience. What do you think,
2: Lindsay? Without speaking for them specifically, um, there are some decent benefits um, when you work with Planned Parenthood, especially healthcare-wise, since they are a healthcare provider. Some people that continue to work there are at a point in their life where I can see it being difficult for them to quit because of their age and where how long they've been there and things like that. Family is a huge part of it too. They have to support their family. They can't just quit. I'm, I'm single I'm by myself and when I quit it's I have a history and restaurant experience so I called someone and got a job the next day like you know like that's different
1: it is difficult to speak for people that uh, have not directly given me permission to speak for them uh, what I can say is that the reasons are varied from my conversations with the staff that are still there some are incredibly passionate about providing these services and know that they were mistreated but because they've believe so strongly in providing these services will remain despite uh, how they have been treated. And right now, there are no other abortion providers in Colorado Springs. And those of us that were providing services were coming from other areas. And, you know, I I drove down there pretty much every week for four years. um, From where? From the, uh, the Denver area. And then there are some people that feel stuck there. The local community can make it difficult to hire you after you've worked there uh, in the medical community, and it can be very difficult to move out of your position there. Unfortunately, it can be a stigmatizing place to work, and it, it shouldn't be, but it is, and it can make it hard for the staff.
0: Dr. James Boyd and Lindsay Raymond, both on duty when the Planned Parenthood Clinic in Colorado Springs came under attack four years ago. Neither of them work with the organization today. Once again, Planned Parenthood declined an interview, but provided us with a statement and written responses to some of the claims you've heard. To Raymond's point that she was without direction on how to answer patients who asked about the shooting, Planned Parenthood writes, quote, We provided resources and guidance to our staff within days. As to what Raymond described as mandatory and surprise active shooter training, Planned Parenthood says that's false, although we've corroborated the story. We want to note that Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains is a CPR sponsor. In this equation, there's Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains, the Mm. kind of regional organization, and there's the
1: national organization.
0: Have you taken your concerns to the top?
1: Yeah. Cecile Richards was the Planned Parenthood Federation president at the time. And I had reached out to her shortly after the shooting with some of my concerns. And initially, she actually got me in touch with some administrative staff that worked at the national office. But then that was pretty quickly kind of dropped. Later that following year, I specifically went to a, a Hillary fundraiser where she was going to appear so that I could speak to her again and went up to her at that fundraiser, letting her know I had been let go, there's still a lot of problems, I really would love to have your help. And she let me know that she would get back in touch with me and that was three years ago. It's been four
0: years now since the shooting. Is it possible that you're dealing with old information, that improvements have been made, that changes have been made, the kinds that you hope to have seen?
1: I can say I I still have regular contact with many of the staff uh, in various offices, and I know that there's more that's the same than there's different. The reality is this is a process for everybody. Again, I've been thankfully spared from a lot of the much uh, harsher uh, stressors that can happen in a PTSD process. But this can also surface for myself or anybody else five years down the road, 10 years down the road um, in various ways. And to make sure that we also are circling back to check in on the people, not just the day after, the week after, and the month after, but really the years after. You know, This organization can do the bare minimum required by law, which is basically what they've done. Or they can engage in a process to actually learn from their mistakes so that we can improve the process and try and prevent this from happening to people in the future. That's what I'm really hoping to come out of this. In an ideal world, I'd love to see the changes so that I can work at one of these clinics again. But you would
0: not, under the current conditions, work at Planned Parenthood again? Currently, I would not. And you, Lindsay?
2: Currently, I would not either.
0: Thanks to both of you for being with us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Dr. James Boyd and Lindsay Raymond, both on duty when the Planned Parenthood clinic in Colorado Springs came under attack 4 years ago, neither of them are with the organization today. 4 years on and the accused shooter has yet to stand trial. A judge has ruled him mentally incompetent. Finally, more now from Planned Parenthood's statement on the 4-year anniversary of the attack. And before I read it, I want to note once again that Planned Parenthood of the Rocky Mountains is a CPR sponsor. Okay, here's their statement. Despite the passage of time, the memories of November 27, 2015, remain all too fresh for many of us, and our hearts go out to all those whose lives were forever changed by the actions of the gunmen. We particularly remember those law enforcement officers who were injured, and the family of Officer Garrett Swayze, who was killed coming to our aid. We will never forget his valor. In the immediate aftermath of that horrible day, Meeting the needs of our Colorado Springs staff was our paramount concern, and that concern continues today. We stand with our staff, those who remain at Planned Parenthood, and those who have moved on, as they each heal from the attack in their own way." Colorado Matters continues after a break. This is CPR News.
3: Some of Colorado's largest employers offer a matching gift or workplace giving promotion to their employees. Using a program like this, you can often double your giving impact. See if your company matches on the support page at CPR.org.
2: CPR's active community of support has allowed CPR News to increase coverage of our state, CPR Classical to reach more of Colorado, and Indy 1023 to deliver the best in new and local music. Thank you.
0: You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. This year saw a war over chili between Colorado and New Mexico, with the governors of both states proclaiming theirs superior. We saw billboards, a video ad.
3: Why is New Mexico green chili the only true green chili? Because we've been doing this for hundreds of years. Growing chilies in the. It
0: got us thinking, no matter where you land in this debate, how we might bring chili into Thanksgiving.
4: You guys have perfect timing. I'm just pulling our turkey out of the oven. It's just about there.
0: We traveled to Zolo Grill in Boulder, specializing in southwestern cuisine, and met chef Kyle Mendenhall, who knows his chilies, and found ways to incorporate them into every course, including dessert. There's even a chili cocktail. But we start with the bird.
4: So this is an ancho chili marinated turkey breast ancho chilies and turkey are a really nice combination they go well really together the chili is dried and it's one of the few chilies that is very raisiny in its flavor raisiny yeah so it's not very hot but it has deep sort of darker caramelized undertones in the chili and so that combined with the the turkey is a beautiful combination so is this a rub that you did it is a rub but it's like a wet rub We take the chilies, and and they're steeped, and they're mixed with a few other ingredients. Uh, We do, like, a little black garlic, which has a really nice, also very fermented, sweet, caramelized undertone. Blend it together, and then we basically massage that around the turkey breast. Is this something you would have at your Thanksgiving table? Absolutely. I mean, I'm sure we're going to get more into it, but chilies are so versatile. I mean, they're so easy to add to so many different things, and it really doesn't take like an extraordinarily, you know, massive culinary mind to do that. Where do you get ancho chilies? I mean, definitely like any Mexican markets, but for us, I mean, we have a a couple purveyors that provide them. Should we give it a taste? Do we have to wait to sit down? Can we do it right here in the kitchen? You're you're the boss, you're the guest, you're the guest (laughs) today, we can do that now. (laughs) I'm gonna give this
0: a quick whiff before you cut in. Please. Oh, it has the sweetest aroma, and
4: you're right. It's like raisins. Very sweet, raisiny, those caramelized undertones. So one thing, I mean, while you're here, I might as well give you a couple other secrets, right? One thing I like, especially when you're dealing with turkey, is to let it rest a little bit. Because you can see, I mean, you won't be able to hear it, but you can see the steam coming off right now. And it's nice to have it rest, because those juices are all moving around right now breast and if we let it rest for a second, they're going to stay inside and not leak out onto our cutting board or your plate or whatever. So.
0: I remember ages ago a doctor telling me never to eat the skin because really? it's bad for you. No. But it's the most no. delicious
4: part. No. The skin is the best part. You know, turkey skin can most certainly be a little tougher than chicken skin, but that said... I mean, especially with this application, where we're taking this marinade and we're kind of massaging it all around the bird, that's where a lot of the flavor is. Yeah. You know, some of it certainly penetrates into the meat itself. Um, And like, for our marinade recipe, it's like 24 hours in advance. So it really has time to seep in. We're rejecting that doctor today.
0: (laughs) All right. Oh, you're right that without the skin, you would lose all of that flavor that lovely crisp burnt and I say burnt in the best way I hope you know it's, that it's a good burn there is such a thing as a good burn now this is a moist piece of
4: turkey that is not always true of turkey and it's a chief complaint exactly what's your tip so my tip is and what I always do every year and I think I don't think any of my family members would complain is I like to number one brining a turkey It's a whole other world, but that is a step that will help ensure your success in in having a moist turkey. So a salt water solution. Exactly. Letting the turkey have a spa day. Salt, water, aromatics, yep. So that's one thing, but not always necessary. In this case, our rub that we put on it yesterday kind of acts as a brine, so to speak. It's just not a wet brine, right? It's this marinade and it seeps in, right? And you have sugars in the marinade and you have salt and it draws out some of the moisture and it also starts to penetrate the meat. And but that's this, really- This was the
0: importance of waiting a day for this.
4: You, you do have to plan ahead, like all good things, right? But you know, when it comes time to actually doing your meal, Thanksgiving or otherwise, then it limits the number of steps you have to do in the moment day per se. Off. Exactly. I will tell you, though, that my other very important tips are I always do high heat to start for, like, the first 45 minutes or so and let the skin get crispy, let it kind of seal itself a bit. And then I will take foil and fold it as such, like you saw on our turkey earlier, that covers the breast because the white meat's going to dry out first. No question about that. There's just a little bit more fat in the darker meat, a little bit more moisture. And so I take that foil and I place it over the breast to protect it and then you go low and slow in the oven. Why don't we leave the chaos of the
0: kitchen and see how else you have integrated chilies into the Thanksgiving table. You bet, I'm ready. First though, a stop at the bar where Brady Marinangeli of Longmont is mixing a chili-infused cocktail. By the way, recipes for everything we mentioned today are at CPR.org.
1: I've made the smoking Hot Beets, with Jim Bolt mezcal, beet juice, cranberry syrup, lemon juice, and uh, chili agave.
0: Beet juice? That sounds entirely too healthy for a cocktail. (laughs) Entirely too much like borscht for a cocktail. (laughs) It's delicious. It's earthy, but it's kind of sweet, and it's delicious. I carry the drink, served up, carefully to a table where Chef Kyle is waiting. He thinks chili gets a bum rap, and we toast to changing that.
4: Here's to chilies, right?
0: Oh, that's got that beet cocktail has a hot finish. Oh, smoky. Smoky. You know the the beet
4: is not offensive. It actually balances really well. I think the poor beet's been mistreated so often that, you know, when you treat it in the right way, it has many great applications. In front of us, you have gathered other Thanksgiving Day possibilities integrating chilies. Why don't you review what we have here? Most certainly. So this is, you know, Brussels sprouts very common side dish for Thanksgiving. And uh, we actually just put these on our menu. And so these are Brussels sprouts that have been sauteed, caramelized a little bit. And then we add what we call rajas. Rajas is, is a term for strips. And it's typically always bell pepper with red onion, olive oil, a little bit of garlic. And they're simply sauteed. But it's a really great way to add some vibrancy, some color, Bell peppers in particular have a nice sweetness, but they also have a little bit of acidity, too. So it plays really well with the Brussels sprout. And that's a simple thing as just sauteing some peppers and adding them to what you would normally do with Brussels sprouts for Thanksgiving. And I have in front of me things I want to eat all of, which are some sort of muffin. So this old-style muffin is its an homage to kind of a sort of a classic American, uh, like Native American almost, mm. um, recipe, and also a or? corn pone. Yeah. <sighs> They happen to be gluten-free. It's made with blue cornmeal. Um, We put our special sort of chili spice in it, which we call Zolo's Voodoo Spice. Okay. It's kind of like, uh, almost like you would think of like a blackening seasoning, but it's a special blend that we have made for us. So that's Mm. in there, there's corn. It's adding a peppery flavor almost. Yeah, you can definitely taste, I mean, there's paprika in there. There's a couple different kinds of dried chilies, a little bit of cayenne, so there's a little bit of heat. And whole corn. Yeah. Oh my goodness. And so, you know, we oftentimes don't realize all the different applications that we're actually using peppers in, chilies in, you know, a blackening season. And people sometimes just think of it as just blackening seasoning, but it's actually, I mean, the, the primary base of that is peppers. Um, arum- right. So when I order something blackened, I'm actually ordering something chilied.
0: Exactly. Wow. Okay. Do you think that maybe I should offer you one of these muffins? Wouldn't
4: that be the nice thing to do? That would be to kind, share. That would be kind of you, especially then, you know, around Thanksgiving. I have to stop talking as much. <laughs> um, I want to get drink. back to
0: this idea. In front of these Brussels sprouts, the turkey. We'll talk about
4: the dessert in a little bit. That chilies are misunderstood. What did you mean by that? My thought is is that people oftentimes they're afraid they're going to be too hot Mm -hmm. right they're going to be too bold they're going to be too strong they're going to overpower things you're going to eat something and it's going to be so hot that you can't taste anything else and that's actually not the case I mean there are many different levels right the Schofield units are what we technically use to measure how much capsaicin is in chilies that's what makes them hot this is the Richter scale of chilies exactly right and there's a very broad range give us the Three best chilies if I'm afraid of heat. Oh, if you're afraid of heat. I mean, bell peppers are very much the most approachable. Um, I like things like the Pueblo chili or hatch green chili. Those are some of my favorites. I mean, a lot of the dried chilies that we use don't really have a whole lot of heat to them. Like a ball has a nice smokiness to it, but it does not. it's not going to come across as really spicy. Kyle, why don't we try these Brussels sprouts? We talked about them earlier. Absolutely. I was so distracted by those delicious
0: blue corn muffins. Mmm. <laughs> Smokiness, once again. And just the right kind of burnt. You do burnt well. I think they're tasty, for sure. It occurs um, to me you don't have to go all out with chili and everything at Thanksgiving. No. Try one side. Maybe even cook half the Brussels sprouts with and half without. Absolutely. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. We've come to Zolo Grill in Boulder to add a little zest to Thanksgiving, a little chili to some of the traditional dishes on the table, turkey, Brussels sprouts, muffins, and soon enough, dessert. But I've got to ask you the question. You know that New Mexico and Colorado right now are in a pitched battle over whose chilies are better. I am aware. We know this. New Mexico produces far more chili than Colorado by many magnitudes. Do you care to weigh in on this debate, which even governors have weighed
4: in on? Absolutely. Um, you better be real careful now with this answer. I'll, I'll be careful. I mean, the reality is uh, something we say in this industry all the time is, is taste trumps everything. OK. And for me, the Pueblo Chili is superior over the hatch green chili. Without a doubt. You've made Southern Colorado mighty happy. What makes you say that? What is it about its taste? Well, I think it, for me it has a lot to do with the fact that they are a thicker pepper, a thicker walled pepper, right? We say there's more flesh. Mm. And it's because of that it, it holds more moisture, holds more flavor, and and the heat is also a factor. You have not been paid by the state of Colorado. No. By Pueblo <laughs> County. No, I mean, I'm a Coloradoan. I I love exploring the food of Colorado and what we do in this state, and I think it's very underrepresented. And the Hatch green chilies are great. I'm not saying that I don't eat them, that we don't use them, or anything like that, but, you know, if I had to choose between the two, it's a pueblo. It's a pueblo.
0: All right, Uh, that was the icing on the cake. And speaking of, you have dessert in front of us. Why don't we wrap up with
4: this? Yeah, the
0: Costco Bell chocolate tart the CascaBell chocolate tart mm-hmm. CascaBell Bell obviously referring to the Chilean
4: question. Yeah, and actually this is one of them right here that oh, I'm It looks showing like a big Bing cherry. It is they're like a like a cherry bomb pepper almost Um, but they're and you're dried. rattling it. It's yeah. dry. I see I didn't know you were musical. <laughs> oh, that's a whole nother story <laughs> um, but the Costco ball is a really I mean, it has a, a sort of a natural smokiness to it. It's a mild pepper, so it's a good one to sort of introduce into things so that it's not going to overpower anything. And in this case, again, another great application of using a dried chili, because what we do to make this chocolate tart is we steep the milk and cream with the Costco ball chilies in it. Mm. So it sort of infuses that flavor. And then once that cream is hot, it's like you would start to make a ganache or something like that. You use the hot cream and melt the chocolate into it. You know, you're not gonna necessarily take a big bite of a dried chili, right? It's just that the fact that it has been infused into that process. And the chocolate
0: in this tart Looks as smooth as I've ever seen chocolate look. I'm going to give it a try.
4: <laughs>
0: I'll decide whether to share afterwards. What do you think?
4: <laughs> it's okay. I, we, we've got plenty more. <laughs> wow, the chili is subtle. It's subtle. It's not kicking me in the taste buds, which is a good thing. And then we have. It's a, a finish almost. It is. It's a little bit on the back end of your tongue yes. after you've had it sit. I mean, chilies and chocolate is a, if there was a good sweet application, this is that it. is a marriage that has worked well for many years. But what we like to do to kind of up that level of, of chili, if you want, is we have some candied Fresno chilies on top. And Fresnos are, are like a red jalapeno, so they do have a little bit of heat to them, less so after they've been cooked and candied. But it's great because you get all of the intense flavor of a chili, but you don't have that heat. You don't have um, that capsaicin coming through.
0: Wow. I would have never thought to combine sugar and a chili like that, but it's a lovely balance. This has been delightful. I want to eat everything. Thank you for your time. Happy Thanksgiving. My pleasure. We've been talking and tasting chili spiked Thanksgiving dishes at Zolo Grill in Boulder with chef Kyle Mendenhall recipes at CPR.org. So what are the folks at Zolo doing on Thanksgiving? Well, it's their tradition to host a feast for people with disabilities and their families. The state of Colorado has a lost and found that's a treasure trove. Vintage baseball cards, war medals, jewelry. It also holds cold, hard cash, close to a billion dollars. Stuff that belongs to individuals, companies, schools, towns. We got a question through Colorado Wonders about how things end up there and why they can sit unclaimed. CPR's Joella Bauman has the answers.
3: Littleton resident Nora Lund found out she had $750 sitting in Colorado's unclaimed property fund. She filled out the forms and got her money back. But it made her wonder what else was in the fund. I started putting in various words. Well, let's see, just put in the word city over a thousand records for cities in Colorado that have funds sitting there. Lund asked Colorado Wonders to find out more. Aurora has had its fair share of unclaimed funds over the years. I start there.
0: I'm Trevor Vaughn, Manager of Tax and Licensing with the City of Aurora Finance Department.
3: Vaughn says the process to reclaim money can be time-consuming. It starts with a search of the state's website to find out what items may belong to the City of Aurora. He finds about 80 items.
0: Due to the number of items that we had, I actually contacted the state directly, and they simplified the process by sending me three consolidated claim forms.
3: Vaughn has to prove the money belongs to the city. He rounds up receipts and records, notarizes them, and uploads them to the website. Vaughn filed a claim in 2016 for more than $13,000, and he's just now seeing that money returned to the city. He says the money built up over the years because of things like uncashed checks written to the city or when it unknowingly overpaid on a balance due.
0: The average is, I want to say, right around $75. I think the range we see is anywhere from just a few pennies. I think we had one on there for 44 cents probably up to $900.
3: On their own, none of the amounts would move the needle for a city that manages millions of dollars each year. But Vaughn says he wants to be a good steward of city funds, and $13,000 is nothing to sneeze at.
0: 20 bulletproof vests, I think, would be around $10,000.
3: Maybe a canine unit or, you know, maybe a new uh, riding lawnmower. Some public entities have considerably more in the fund. Six state agencies have upwards of $150,000 sitting unclaimed. The University of Colorado topped that list with over $500,000 in the fund, which has been sitting there for years. CU's Ken McConnellog said they recently began the process to get it back.
0: We first contacted the state about April, May of last year. It took quite some
1: time for them to get back with us. And we've had some success with that. We've received payments totaling about $130,000 as of July.
3: On the other end of the spectrum, some smaller towns don't bother checking the fund because they generate far fewer claims. Many said it doesn't make sense to spend city dollars chasing dimes, especially since for years the system was clunky. That did change under former state treasurer Walker Stapleton, who worked to make improvements on the system, which is called the Great Colorado Payback. He started by making the public more aware that they might have money waiting for them.
1: I'm Colorado Treasurer Walker Stapleton. Like most Coloradans, I love Broncos football. And as your treasurer, I love finding ways to give people their money back. And that's what the great Colorado payback is all about.
3: Stapleton says the campaign was so successful it almost backfired.
2: We did not have the corresponding staff or technology to handle the upswing in claims. And so uh, that illuminated some other problems.
3: Stapleton had to fix an antiquated database, make staffing improvements, and change the way the state communicated with claimants. Those changes have made it easier for the current administration to address the backlog of claims. Bianca Gardelli has been the director of the unclaimed property division for the last year. When she arrived, there were more than 12,000 claims in backlog. Now there are 1,500. Gardelli has also continued to streamline the process for the web. Claimants can go on and actually find property and start the claim there. They can also upload their documents there. It's not only scanning, but emailing rather than putting a letter in the mail. The Unclaimed Property Division still has significant problems with its claim system. That's the conclusion of a report released by the Office of the State Auditor after reviewing the last five years of claim records. This was the first state audit of the division since it started in 1987. Senator Nancy Todd heads the Legislative Audit Committee.
4: There has been some remedy but obviously still very concerned about the backlog. And there was also
2: a real genuine concern of just the process of how long and how cumbersome it is for people to get their property back.
3: Current state treasurer Dave Young says the agency has addressed most of the backlog while processing 16,000 new claims on time.
0: There's real evidence that we are already on the way to addressing these concerns that were raised by the auditor.
3: Nora Lunn, who contacted us through Colorado Wonders, had another question about all that money. Does the state gain interest on that money that sits there? The state does keep the interest. It goes to things like Colorado's State Fair and Great Outdoors Colorado. And if an estate doesn't claim its money after 21 years, Colorado applies that to the state school fund. And in lean budget years, they sometimes tap the fund for other items. Treasurer Young says it's been that way for decades.
0: They actually used some funds out of there during the last recession. We've had cover Colorado. It was to cover people that couldn't actually buy health insurance. We have the adult dental benefit for Medicaid that's paid out of there.
3: Just this year, the legislature tapped $30 million for transportation and roads and $30 million annually through 2023 for affordable housing. These decisions spark controversy. Walker Stapleton has always vehemently opposed this kind of spending. Treasurer Young, a former budget writer for the state, understands the temptation, but he too argues against spending the fund.
0: This is not the people's money. This is individual people's money. And the reality is if claimants came and we had spent enough of this principle that we couldn't actually return the money, the General Assembly would have to come up with the money out of the general fund
3: to make good on those claims. These debates over the fund will continue, as long as there's a billion dollars in cash sitting there unclaimed. I'm Joella Bauman, CPR News.
0: What do you wonder about when it comes to Colorado? Send us your questions at cpr.org slash coloradowonders. And that's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.